Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Eric Likes Animals. I'm Eric Mahan. Thank you guys so much for listening. Now, I'm really excited about the show for today, especially our main topic, our species of the day. But before we get into that, why don't we check on out some environmental news? First up, the little mammal species, the bilby from Australia, goes back to school. The bilby used to inhabit about 70% of Australia, but like many animals, took a huge hit when introduced with feral cats and dogs. They just did not have understanding on what to do with these creatures. But scientists decided that it was time for them to go to school, because if they have any chance of surviving, it's time to finally teach the bilby exactly what to do with cats and dogs. And reports have shown the success of the program, which involves scientists using negative things and pairing them with smells and sounds from cats and dogs to associate bad things with those animals because they just didn't understand that. And one of the things that they use is, well, getting shot with a swirt gun. Okay, so yeah, uh, basically the bilbies there, all of a sudden it smells a cat and then boop. Scientists shoot you with a squirt gun. I'm sure a lot of our teachers out there wish they could do that with their students in school. Moving on, let's start with a joke. What did the fish say when it hit a concrete wall? Damn. Well, that joke isn't happening as much in Europe recently. In 2021, a record number of dams have actually been taken down or removed, helping fish migration routes, and has been long blocking and choking up these populations. The Guardian reports that 239 barriers in 17 countries had actually been removed, with Spain leading the way with only 108 dams. Damn, Spain, I see you trying to get some fishy breeding on, and way to go. Lastly, milkshakes might bring all the boys to the yard, but snapping shrimp bring all the baby oysters to the shore. New research shows that by playing snapping sounds of certain species of shrimp, it will actually attract baby oysters to that location, swimming towards the sound of the snapping shrimp. The idea behind it is that these oysters are listening for noises like these snapping shrimp to indicate where good populations or good habitat might be found based on its inhabitants. And since they don't really have eyes, Hearing is always the best way for these oysters to figure out where to go. This also excites scientists a lot because not only do they know now how to attract oysters in locations, which can really help out the population of oysters, kind of encourage them to settle down in areas that maybe have less boat traffic or other sort of situations, But oysters don't actually just float around in the ocean when they're first born and kind of just randomly land somewhere like previously thought, kind of like a seed from a tree, but they actually have some control on where they have to go. And this can actually greatly increase the ecosystem and oysters are a great filtration. So they're very excited for this prospect of just simply playing shrimp calls or shrimp snaps to encourage oysters along. And that is our environmental news for the day. So like I said, I'm really excited about our species of the day. This is one that I actually work with currently, and these guys are awesome, all right? I'm truly excited. The nickname a lot of people have for them are little blueberries because they're tiny and adorable and little and blue. And of course, I am talking about the blue death-faying beetle. These guys are 
comical, okay? I probably could stand and watch them for hours. I'm talking about just, you know, they kind of are just goofy, you know, how they walk and like they're just really cool uh, looking. But I mean, one of the funniest things that I always see is even though there's a big bowl of food in there for them and one of them grabs a piece and starts walking away, all of a sudden two others feel like they need that piece of food. Even though there's like 30 pieces left in the food dish, they want that one that the other has. Like these guys, definitely comical. Definitely an amazing species and just excited to talk to you guys about it today. So why don't we get into it? So the blue death fang beetle is a small species of darkling beetle found in the southwestern parts of the United States. With a size of about 0.7 to 0.82 inches or 18 to 21 millimeters, they're decent size for a bug, but obviously not huge. They are not very territorial. Yeah, they might chase each other around a little bit after a piece of cantaloupe, but they're not aggressive about it. And in fact, when they find them out in the wild, sometimes there's multiple underneath the same piece of shade. Darkling beetles in general are a large group of beetles. There's about 20,000 small darkling beetles out there. But just like some of the blue death fading beetles, they can actually be very colorful, unlike their name entails. Some of the most recognized in this group are actually something that a lot of pet owners feed to their reptiles, and that is mealworms and superworms. Both of these are common reptile and even sometimes people food. Like sometimes you might find the mealworm in a lollipop somewhere. (laughs) I personally have not tried it, but yeah, (laughs) I see them a lot of times in certain gift shops. But These guys are the larval form of two different species of darkling beetle, which of course means they are related to our species of the day, the blue death-faying beetle. Moving on. They live in the deserts, like I said, in the southwestern United States, and like just many other desert creatures, they are not idiots, and they like to come out at night when it's nice and cool compared to the hot heat of the day. Not that they don't, but definitely prefer to come out at night. These guys are very cute little beetles, but one of the first things you may recognize them, of course, is their blue color. Like I said, they're nicknamed sometimes little blueberries. This is created actually from a wax that is secreted from them to protect themselves from overheating and dehydration, sort of like sunscreen or sort of like a Ziploc bag, but instead of sealing in the flavors, it's sealing in the hydration of the beetle so they don't dry out. Since that's a wax that gives them that blue color, if it does rain, because it does sometimes rain in the desert, that wax might get washed off or might kind of dissolve a little bit or get washed away, whatever. They will actually turn dark again. So they are a dark beetle, but the wax that normally is over them gives them that bluish color. And depending on the humidity, the blacker they are, If it's wetter out and if it starts getting drier out, then they produce more of the bright blue. So their kind of colors will change depending on humidity, rain, things like that. Normally, they don't want to get too wet. So a lot of times it's more that blue color, but sometimes you can't help it. Other things to note about their characteristics are that they have these little bumps all over them that kind of give them a cool armor look to them. Reports say that they normally live for eight years, but other reports have indicated that they can actually live up to 15 years. Their diet is normally rotting plants, seeds, as well as lichens and fungus, but also have been known to eat dead things and insects. And it pays to basically be eating whatever you can find, especially when you live in a 
desert. The males and the females do look very similar. There are some people that indicate that males might be smaller, but you know, that's kind of harder to tell. Actually, one of the easiest things to do is if you had a magnifying glass, you can look at the antennas. Males will have normally hairier antennas than the females. They will breed and females will lay a number of eggs in some substrate, normally near some decaying material. But not much is actually known too much about breeding of wild death fang beetles. They are very secretive about their larval in the wild. We know some things like larval and pupa have been found in decaying wood, but for the longest time, we could not get pupate to hatch in captivity. It just wasn't happening. They would lay the eggs, the larva would look good, and then they would pupate, and then no real beetles would ever emerge. That is until 2018 when Cincinnati Zoo was the first one to successfully breed them. Not too long after that, all of a sudden, private breeders started figuring it out as well. And it's pretty interesting because, as I was saying, they don't really like a lot of humidity, all right? The adult beetles, if it gets too humid or too wet, they've been known to bury down. So, yeah, you would think that humidity is not a good thing for the larva or the pupa, But actually, that was the secret. Humidity was the major issue that seemed to solve the issue and get them through the metamorphosis. And it kind of makes sense. You see, the adult beetles themselves don't normally like to get wet because they have the waxy coating. Kind of like someone with a suede jacket trying to avoid the rain because it'll ruin their coat. But when you're the larval or the pupate, you don't have that yet. So higher humidities in the desert can really help you get along, especially because you're probably drying out in that sun. So higher humidity is the key. And it also makes sense, too, because these guys were being found in decaying trees or live trees or wherever, which is normally a more humid area, which is really cool when you think about how these beetles know exactly where to go in an area that many people would consider void of any water or humidity, that they would know exactly where to go for the best success for their larva. So this is kind of a rough estimate on humidity and degrees because there's still a little bit of variance between exactly what is 100% right. But these beetles, you know, they can be kept in pretty warm temperatures like 80 degrees and all that sort of stuff with like 30% humidity to kind of mimic the desert. You don't want to go extreme heat like you're not trying to make it 100 degrees in there for them. But the larva, what they were finding out, did a lot better in 85 degrees, but anywhere from 80 to 80% humidity was what was required, which is really warm or and really humid. Like that's tropical rainforest kind of level. But Once they were keeping larvae in that kind of temperature and humidity, all of a sudden the pupates were hatching and people were being able to hatch out and grow beetles. Talk about a major change of preference from a larva to adult. But hey, a lot of bugs and amphibians go through similar drastic differences. So I guess when you really think about it, it's not too crazy. But it is when you think about it all happening within a desert. Now, All of that is really interesting, but probably one of the most unique things is actually what happens when a predator spots the blue death fang beetle. The major predator of the blue death fang beetle is actually spiders. And these 
blue deathfanging beetles have a very unique ability if threatened by pretty much anything, but it is specifically really seems like it was evolved in a way to deal with spiders. And what happens is, say, I'm a blue deathfanging beetle, da 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 da, walking along, all of a sudden a spider comes out of nowhere, freaks me out, and I give a Oscar level performance of dying. Where you see the blue death fanging beetle will roll over on its back and stick its little feet up in the air and play dead. And these guys really go all out. Like you could flip them back, you could, you know, all this sort of stuff, and they will stay dead still. All right. They're not even like trying to be like, dude, cut it out. I'm trying to play dead. All right. Go, go away, you know, or anything like that. No, they are pretty much look like they're dead to the world until the threat has long passed. And the reason for this is because spiders prefer live prey. So with them playing dead, it's not as a, an appealing meal anymore. And as a major thing for most animals, if something drops dead in front of you, if you were trying to eat it, yeah, you're not going to eat it anymore. All right. You, you don't know what just happened and why this thing is dead. But yeah, that's why so many animals actually do the dead routine or playing possum. Obviously, playing possum is one of the classics that we always hear about that they'll fake their own death. But yeah, these guys do it as well. This is great, especially because unlike many other beetle species, they kind of went for the being able to survive in the desert versus some of the other things that other darkling beetles have to deal with predators. For one, they don't have wings. They really don't. Okay. So they kind of have this harder shell. They, and it's kind of all the wax and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's kind of hard to deal with wings, especially because that's one more area that could lose hydration from. So they developed not to really have that. And the other thing too is the waxy layer. They're doing a lot of that sort of stuff, but unlike other darkling beetles, they don't have the ability to create a noxious smell or spray to ward off predators because for other darkling beetles, they could produce a noxious spray or something and all of a sudden like the animal gets this terrible taste in their mouth or this horrible smell and they're like, oh gosh, no, and just don't want to even deal with something like that. But because these guys, there's only so much space you can put under the hood, so they had to pick and choose. And they chose correctly. They chose the mods that were going to help them survive living in the desert. They weren't choosing the noxious gas. They were choosing to be able to stay hydrated and stay protected from the sun. And because they don't have it, well, they adapted. They learned how to fake their own death. And hey, it's working out pretty well for them. These guys are doing great. Through the IUCN doesn't have a lot of data on them. Many scientists don't really see them as a concern based on their population from little pockets that they see out in the wild. But their habitat itself is under a major threat. So we are still going to talk about kind of what are the major threats affecting them because pretty much any animal, even if it's least concerned right now, there's something going on with it that could possibly change that in the future. We already talked about the issues with water in the deserts right now, but we're going to talk about a very specific problem with not just the water, but kind of the heat. For you see, it's actually getting too hot for many desert plants. And many desert plants are a major shelter, food, water, all of that for these little beetles. So if those plants are suffering, these guys are not too far behind. 
And the main one that actually seems to be suffering a lot are cactuses. Yeah, it's getting too hot for cactuses. And there is a study out there that suggests that by the mid-century, we could lose up to 60% of all cactus species. And now not all of them are found in the desert, but all of them are dying out from either global climate change or deforestation or whatever. But 60% of all cactuses by the mid-century on this planet could disappear. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Just because a cactus can survive a desert doesn't mean that it wants to survive the hottest, driest portion of that desert all year around. Because a lot of these plants, what they're doing is, yeah, a cactus can survive in these extreme conditions, but with the knowledge that it will have a cooler season, a wetter season, like they need to rest, recuperate, get some water back into them because they do still need to be watered, okay? Not as much as other plants, but they still need water and they still need cooler temperatures to survive. So with the slight increase in temperatures and, you know, it being a lot drier, it's actually greatly hurting these cactuses. Say we lose all the cactuses, okay, out in the wild, but you're probably thinking, well, there's a lot of cactuses like in gardens and all that. Why couldn't we start transplanting them back into the wild? And that is easier said than done. For example, let me talk to you about the saguaro cactus. Now, the saguaro cactus is that classic giant cactus that you think of when you think of the American Southwest, okay? The kind of really big one with all the arms coming out. That's a saguaro cactus, okay? So, first up, these guys are extremely slow-growing plants, all right? And they are so important, however, for the wildlife there, especially the really old ones with all those branches, okay? It is a shelter. It is food, all right? The flowers are a big pollination thing, so a lot of insects and birds rely on them. So these guys are like the lifeblood for deserts because without them in some areas, like there's not much else there. Now there's other cactuses, but hey, if the saguaro's going, so is probably a lot of the other cactuses in that region. So like I said, they're slow growing. All right. So say you have a little saguaro cactus and you put it out in the desert or, well, obviously you need permission. (laughs) Don't just start planting stuff out in the wild. Okay. Say, okay, let's say you have a backyard and you plant a saguaro cactus because you live in Arizona and you listen to one of the things that I've talked about where, yes, we should have more natural native plants in our own backyard and you live in Arizona and wanted to do something. All right. So you plant a little tiny saguaro cactus. Okay. It's probably like two years old. It will be 35 years old until it produces its first flower. And that is minimum age, depending on temperature, humidity, and uh, even food. They still get a little bit of plant food. It could take even longer. But minimum age, you will finally see a flower on that cactus at 35. And it will take 50 to 70 years before that little cactus even starts to grow one of those branches. But once again, could take longer. And for a decent sized one with a couple of arms, which is the main one that provides the food, the water, the shelter, and many other things for certain animals, it could be up to a hundred 
years. It could be 100 years to get them back. And that is if conditions improve. So yeah, saving these cactuses now is a lot easier than trying to plant more cactuses later. Because a lot of animals can't wait 100 years to get their homes back. And I mean, we really fucked up if it's getting too hot for freaking cactuses, okay? Besides reducing uh, world global climate change and reducing water consumption in the Southwest, there are other threats against these cactuses as well. Two being, of course, that people are going out and trying to steal them, chop them down. And of course, there are the jerks out there that like to carve their name into live plants for some reason and try and carve into a cactus. So yeah, all that stuff, not very good. But there is hope. Besides, obviously, dealing with global climate change, pollution, blah, 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 blah. Sorry, it's pretty much a theme for most animals right now. Education. Educating the public on saving the species and planting native plants. Those are going to be major things to help out the swarrow and other native plant species in these locations. Because also, unnative plants could come in and outcompete them. And also, people using all that water is dehydrating the cactuses out in the wild and also changing the climate in those towns, making it not okay for cactuses there either. So, yeah leaving nature be nature, as well as also encouraging and educating people on the rules and regulations because swara cactuses and many other plants in that region are under the Native Plant Protection Act. So actually messing with swaros could include fines and even jail time, depending on how much you mess up a cactus, and especially if it's one of the older ones. Yeah, so don't mess with cactuses. It's going to hurt you physically and possibly financially. So educate people, encourage native plant growth, because all of these things are going to help out these plants in these unique regions like the desert, and in turn, help our good friend, the blue death fang beetle, our little blueberry of the desert. And that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening and hearing about the amazing Blue Death Fang Beetle. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I definitely enjoy telling you about it. And as always, make sure to check me out on Twitter and Facebook. Links will be down below in the description. And as always, please reach out, share the podcast, all that sort of stuff. Definitely helps me out a lot. Thank you guys so much for listening once again. And until next time, See ya.